Listening to Gore Report, a true crime podcast. <laughs> it wasn't intentional, but it happened there. We are forever sharing that one singular dumbass brain cell. <laughs> For sure. It's a small brain cell, but it is loved with friendship and full of fuckery. So if you're new here, Hi, hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Gore family. We hope you like what you hear from us. We are wishing you a good day and a good week and and a a good good (laughs) (laughs) Why do we do the screaming goat thing? (laughs) Like, that's becoming more frequent, I'm noticing. I know. know. Hi, if you're new here, we're sorry. (laughs) That is if they haven't already clicked off. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So we are excited to be here today. This is week two of Five Weeks of Suffering. Five Weeks of Suffering. And uh, it's going to be rough. I am really, really not excited for today. Um... I'm definitely in some awkward vibes right now and some sad vibes right now. (laughs) So, oh my goodness, this is just, it's not going to be good, you guys. This week isn't going to be good. Next week isn't going to be good. The week after that is not going to be good. (laughs) The forecast for the next three weeks, not going to be good. I am your oh fuck weatherman, and I am here to tell you that there will be a lot of oh fucks in the next three weeks. Partly cloudy with an 80% chance of missing asshole. (laughs) (laughs) That is exactly what we're doing this uh, next couple of weeks, you guys. Goodness. Oh, man. So, today's case is a listener request and also a case that I knew I wanted to cover since the beginning months of our show. Mm Mm-hmm. Zen, thank you for writing to us and requesting today's case. Yes, thank you so much, Zen. It's much appreciated. Yes. A quick reminder before we dive in, if you have requested a case and we have not covered it yet, please be patient with us. We haven't forgotten about you. No, definitely not. Our case request list is getting pretty lengthy, so uh, yeah, we, we try our best to be diligent with them going through them and... We promise we will get to them as soon as we can. We do promise that we will get to it. Yes. One way or the other, it's going to be covered. (laughs) Anything that is on that list from you guys is going to be covered. It's just, you know, sometimes we want to sprinkle in some of that, uh, some of that weird shit. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. um, I'm glad we're having some laughs now because uh, we are not going to be having... Uh, laughs today you guys so enjoy enjoy the goofy atmosphere while it lasts because it's very quickly about to dissipate into a void of nothing dark nothing dark sad nothing oh you don't even know what i'm covering yet so yeah 
But I know it's going to be bad. But. I know it's not going to be good because you told me it wasn't going to be good. It's not going to be good, but it is going to be a two-parter. So, as I mentioned earlier, this is a case that I've been wanting to do for a very long time because I vividly remember when this event happened and the aftermath that was left in its wake. Oh, shit. This massacre not only completely shook Littleton, Colorado, but it <gasps> also shook the entire world. No. This is one of the worst tragedies to ever happen in America. And I am talking about Columbine. Holy shit. Oh, my goodness. This is going to be so sad. You bitch. <laughs> Yeah, I'm about to really show my age here, but I was 13 and in middle school when Columbine happened. I remember hearing about it through the news and some websites online, but during my research into this case, I also remembered that we didn't have the internet like we know it today. Right, right. It was just becoming a thing or starting to really become a thing in 99, I believe. And things were so different that when I was researching this... Some of the footage from inside the school hit me really hard because some of the videos I found was my first time actually seeing it. Oh, my goodness. After so many years. So with that being said, because of the nature of the videos, I will not be including any video footage in our photo dumps from inside the school on that particular day. It is available online if your curiosity is piqued, but just just. Out of respect, we will not be posting them. Furthermore, the actual story of Columbine has discrepancies that I'd like to address in today's episode. So we're going to have some good discussions today. And this is going to be a two-parter, as I mentioned, in which today I will discuss the lives of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, along with everything that happened along the way, building up to part two, where we will discuss the timeline of events on April 20th, 1999, the victims, and how Columbine changed our nation completely. Ooh, we... On April 20th, 1999, at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, 18-year-old Eric Harris and 17-year-old Dylan Klebold brutally and viciously attacked and murdered 13 people, wounding more than 20 others, before turning their guns on themselves and committing suicide. At the time... Columbine was known as the worst high school shooting in U.S. history. This was the precedent for school shootings. Nothing like this had ever happened before. There was no protocol to handle a situation like this, and no one was prepared for the hate-fueled rampage that ripped its way through everyone's sense of normalcy. We are following a breaking story today, a shooting at a high school in Littleton, Colorado, that's near Denver. Here is what we know so far. Witnesses say two gunmen dressed in black trench coats with black masks opened fire at Columbine High School. They said the gunmen went from one area of the school to another, shooting students as they went. A student who witnessed the shooting said the gunmen were carrying guns, small Uzi, and some pipe bombs. Witnesses say the gunmen are students. 14 students have been injured. Five have been taken to at least two hospitals with gunshot wounds. We are told the most severely injured was a female student suffering nine gunshot wounds to her chest. The Jefferson County SWAT team is indeed in the school. 
and is uh, methodically going through uh, to find these uh, shooters. Explosions have been heard as witnesses have reported it to authorities. He came into the library, shot everybody around me, then put a gun to my head and said as if we were all wanted to die. We ran into houses. Wherever we could go, we just went to any houses we could find. Eric David Harris was born on April 9, 1981 in Wichita, Kansas, to parents Wayne Harris and Catherine Ann Poole. Eric was the youngest child, and he had an older brother named Kevin. Now, Catherine, she was a loving and caring mother and a homemaker. She held down the fort at home while Wayne worked as a U.S. Air Force transport pilot. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Wayne's job required the family to move around a lot, and Eric's childhood was... Despite being uprooted several times, he was just a normal, happy kid. He was described as, quote, part of the crowd because he just fit in. Eric spent most of his childhood in Wichita, Kansas, before moving to Plattsburgh, New York. And in Plattsburgh, he began to play Little League Baseball, and he was actually pretty good at it. But in July of 1993, the family had to move again, finally settling in Littleton, Colorado, when his dad finally retired from the military. So by the time they moved to Littleton, Eric was 12. The Harris family lived in a rental situation for the first three years of their time in Littleton while they took their time looking to purchase a home that they would call their forever home. And it was around this time that Eric met Dylan Klebold. Once 1996 came around, the Harris family purchased a house south of Columbine High School. And Eric would attend that school while his brother attended the University of Colorado at Boulder. Wayne took a job with Flight Safety Services Corporation and Catherine got a job as a caterer. So Wayne and Catherine were very strict, but they were very loving parents. Like his parents were involved in his life from what I've seen. Neighbors stated that the Harris family were great neighbors and they would see Wayne engaged and actually being involved in his son's lives. So, like, they'd see them outside and out and about together. So, the general census was that this was a normal family comprised of good people. In 1997, for an English class assignment, Eric wrote about how difficult the move was from New York to Colorado, saying, quote, It was the hardest moving from Plattsburgh. I have the most memories from there. When I left, I felt alone, lost, and even agitated that I had spent so much time with them and now I have to go because of something I can't stop, end quote. Them oh. being his friends. Oh, that's sad. So when he left his friends and his hobbies behind, it really upset him. And he blamed his dad for moving the family around everywhere. So he recorded a tape of himself basically venting on camera in his basement. And he said basically that his dad was forcing him to start out at the bottom of the ladder all over again. Wow. One source brought up a physical deformity that Eric had, and, you know, I thought it was interesting, so I wanted to include it, but it was a chest deformity known as pectus excavatum, or funnel chest. Wow, good so, job. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of, <laughs> little bit of hat tilt there. Um, that was a little fancy, even for me, but wow. it's where the breastbone is sunken into the chest, and it's most common in boys, and it worsens during adolescence. So, like, right around your sternum area, it would be, like, more caved in. 
Wow, thing. I totally didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. I really didn't. But uh, having this deformity and being bullied when he removed his shirt, it created an insecurity for him. And he even had two cosmetic surgeries to fix it at ages 12 and 13. Goodness, he's so young. Yeah. And that sounds like it would be pretty major. I don't know if that would be considered a major procedure, but... I mean, that just sounds like I would think so, because you're working on the sternum like your breastbone. It seems like it's pretty intense considering how young he is. That just that's a lot. Yeah. And that's very invasive, too. Right. Right. And I'm bringing this up because we can now see why he may be feeling like he has to start all over again because he's remembering the reactions of others when he just removed his shirt. You know, trying to dress out for gym or, or go swimming or whatever. And he's anticipating more bullying. So that that would cause anger and resentment. You know, he has this insecurity about his body and he's upset with his father about having to start all over again. And he left all his friends behind. He doesn't know anyone here. So, yeah, it created anger issues for him. I for sure. I mean, I can imagine that's just... That's a really big mixing pot of emotion. Right. And he's so young. I know I've said that already, but he's at this point. I mean, even when everything happened, they were young. But, you know, he's young, young. Yeah. And that is just so much to deal with. I could see that that more than likely would cause a few problems. I mean, yeah, (laughs) laughs out of anxiety. I'm so sorry, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you don't know, kids that have at least one parent in the military, they will experience all the wonderful teachings of Uncle Sam right at home. <laughs> oh, no. You know, the very strict rules, the do-what-I-say attitude, yet we work as a team motto, you know, but the discipline's crazy, too, you know? But right. I'm not knocking, okay? I'm a military brat. Like, I grew up with a military father, and my brother went into the military, but fuck, man. (laughs) When you're the one in the family that feels like you're never going to fit in because you're drastically different and you hate all the rules, it's going to instill resentment and frustration, which will lead to anger. And then you compound that with other kids being, you know, mean because kids can be super cruel. I couldn't imagine the bullying. So what do you do? You rebel. And it's worse if you're dealing with someone who has an unknown or unchecked mental illness or condition. We will get into that later because the boys actually did end up getting a diagnosis. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Eric's temperament and behavior seemed to be normal on the outside, but he actually was having a hard time dealing with his emotions and finding where he fit in. Eric wore what he would consider to be preppy clothes. He got into soccer for his freshman and sophomore year, and he played very well. According to one of his teammates, Josh Swanson, he said Eric was a solid soccer player who enjoyed the sport. Gotcha. From all accounts, he was popular. He had a lot of friends. He developed an interest in video games and computers, and he was insanely smart. And even thought of following his father's path into the military by applying to be enlisted into the Marines after graduating. Very interesting. But for Eric Harris, his anger and disdain couldn't all be blamed on daddy issues. Eric was harboring this deep, festering hatred for the world around him. And he had a psychopathic personality. And I'm not saying that to be funny, but after Columbine... 
psychologist officially diagnosed Eric as such. And I'll get to that, like I said, a gotcha, little bit later. Gotcha. But this following example that I'm about to give you only makes sense when you understand what mental illness or mental capacity that we're talking about in reference. But uh, Eric started Columbine High in 1994 as a freshman. And during his freshman year, he met Tiffany Typher in German class. And he wasted no time whatsoever trying to woo her. Like, he was on it. Gotcha, gotcha. And with homecoming coming up, Eric asked Tiffany to be his date. She accepted. But after homecoming, she wasn't interested in seeing him anymore. I don't know if something happened at homecoming, but for whatever reason, she decided she didn't want to associate with Eric anymore. And that should have been the end of it. Right, exactly. Just because she accepts a date, then decides she doesn't want to associate with you after said date. She does not owe you anything, including consent or an explanation. Right. We are in very much entitled to say no at any point. Oh, man, I'm just. Yeah, uh... I mean, it's a tangent, but this tangent is actually important because when Tiffany refused to even socialize with Eric, he staged a fake suicide. What? He sprawled out on the ground with fake blood all over him for Tiffany to find. Holy shit. That is... I honestly really don't know what to say to that. I did not expect that. Yeah, she she saw him lying on the ground, and she began to hysterically start to scream. And, you know, she's freaking out. And then Eric and his hidden friends begin to laugh at her. What in the fuck? Is that. And she shouted at him to get psychological help while she was like storming off. She was pissed the fuck off, which I would be too. Yeah, that's that's pretty extreme for a joke. And it's so scary. Like he felt the need to get revenge on Tiffany just for not talking to him or wanting to date him. Like not only is his entitlement showing, but the complete lack of empathy to weaponize suicide to mentally terrorize her is wild right that these are all details that you're giving i think we all know what columbine is yes but the details of you know their early life and things that they dealt with or did this is information i had never heard before so i am i am beside myself like truly i did not know that he ever did anything like that that's so yeah that whole you know revenge filled personality that need to punish someone for not giving in to your whim or your way that is very dangerous and that is exactly why we remind that is extremely you guys, dangerous that is exactly why we remind you guys every time we're on this podcast that consent is important because it is consent can be withdrawn at any moment that does not give you the right to get revenge on that person because they want to withdraw consent like that's autonomy is it you guys like we do the whole consent is important thing in a really goofy manner that's just kind of what we've always said but it is very important yes like all jokes aside (laughs) another example is something he wrote in his journal he said quote i want to tear a throat out with my own teeth like a pop can i want to grab some weak little freshmen and just tear them apart like a fucking wolf Strangle them, squish their head, rip off their jaw, break their arms in half, show them who is God, end quote. Goodness. 
Like, holy shit. <laughs> he was dealing with a lot of misplaced anger. And it's not like his anger was directed toward one person, but more like it was towards everyone. Like the whole world. Mind you, ever since Eric met Dylan in the seventh grade, it was glaringly clear to the both of them that they were not only fellow students, but they also shared these dark ideas and fantasies. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to talk about Dylan Klebold. Dylan Bennett Klebold was born September 11th, 1981 in Lakewood, Colorado, to parents Thomas Klebold and Susan Yasinoff. Dylan had a completely different life than Eric, but his household was also very loving, caring, and non-abusive. Both of Dylan's parents were art graduates of Ohio State University, but after their marriage, they ended up going down like their own important paths. Thomas was originally a sculptor, but turned to engineering to support his family, and Sue worked with assistant services for the disabled. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they were, you know, considered extreme pacifists. Uh, they didn't believe in violence whatsoever. They take a more gentle approach when it comes to parenting. And they were also Lutheran. Actually, Dylan and his older brother, Byron, they actually attended confirmation classes that were in accordance with their Lutheran tradition. And if any of you are unfamiliar with that, um, with the confirmation classes, in Christian denominations that practice infant baptism, confirmation is seen as the sealing of the covenant created in baptism. Gotcha, gotcha. So basically, they had to attend meetings or classes before they could be baptized, or at least that's my understanding of it. Gotcha. Like you have to fully understand why you're being baptized before you can do that. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So the family, they were very religious and traditional, especially at home. They would observe certain days and carry out rituals that were in keeping with the tradition of the maternal grandmother. Because she was Russian. She had Russian heritage. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So there was a lot of like really great family morals and values in the home. So it was nice. Growing up, Dylan's parents absolutely doted on him and Byron. Dylan grew up learning high emotional situations and not not like in a bad way because he was in a very loving household. Like I said, he was taught to be very open minded. He was taught to be an open individual and just with an open heart, basically. They were just a quiet, middle-class family that lived in a beautiful neighborhood, and they seemed normal as can be. There was nothing that would indicate Dylan had been harmed or wronged in some way at all during his childhood. In fact, his parents busted their ass to form their own real estate company, which substantially increased the family's income and provided, you know, a comfortable home environment for their family. So Dylan nor Byron wanted for anything, which makes the story so sad. Because if Eric and Dylan had help, this wouldn't have happened. Right. That's what I was thinking, too. Because, like, you know, money and material things, sure, that's nice. But that doesn't, that doesn't completely make you happy. Yeah. And it won't completely make you okay. So I don't know. I just think it's it's an example of that. You know, he may have had all of these things and him and his brother never wanted for anything. But clearly we see what happened. He yeah. wasn't happy. Right. He was really, really struggling with things. And it's, 
I just think it's incredibly sad. Like, especially hearing all this background, like mm-hmm. information I had no clue about. It just really, really makes my heart sad because I know what's coming. And yeah, it's, and that's it's why sad. I really wanted to um, cover this story, you know, as a side note, because they were just kids that had mental issues during a time where mel- mental illness just was not talked about, you know. Right. So to make make a very long explanation shorter with those unknown things that they were going through, even though they had a loving and caring family, the reason why I wanted to spell out everything in their home life was because it wasn't for lack of parental care. Both of their homes were very loving. They had parents who cared about them. Right. For sure. Right. And even though these kids are deemed as monsters for what they did, they were still human. They had, you know, twisted ideals coming Clearly. from, from yeah, <laughs> Clearly. I mean, coming from anywhere. I mean, we could blame anything on it, but the fact of the matter is, is that they did it. Right. Right. So anyway, back to the story. Um, Dylan ended up attending Normandy Elementary in Littleton, Colorado for his first two grades before he transferred to a place called Governor's Ranch Elementary. And he became part of a program named CHIPS, which is an acronym for Challenging High Intellectual Potential Students. So he was crazy smart. Like, he was very intelligent, and he was in a lot of gifted classes. It didn't come without difficulty, though, because Dylan was diagnosed with pyloric stenosis, which is a condition where the opening between the stomach and the small intestines thickened, which caused severe vomiting during the first six months of life. Because the thickening prevents the stomach from emptying into the intestines, food backs up into the esophagus, which causes the vomiting. So this is also another condition that is commonly seen in boys. And I'm not a doctor, but I'm sure there was some sort of treatment that they probably did for it. But I don't know if that causes problems throughout the rest of your life. Right, right. I wouldn't Um, know either. Right. Uh, So whether it's controlled with meds, either way, his childhood wasn't a complete easy street because of whatever physical obstacles. But despite those obstacles, Dylan had a childhood many of us wish we had. He spent his time playing video games, listening to music, enjoying bowling, and he was a devoted fan of the Boston Red Sox. When he finished elementary school, he was then transferred to Ken Carroll Middle School, where he found the transition to be quite difficult. But his parents weren't, like, overly concerned by this because they assumed it was just normal transition woes. Right, right. Dylan's classmates recalled how he made them uncomfortable by how shy and quiet he was. He would fidget whenever someone new talked to him, and it was a rare occasion for him to open up to people. Uh, can relate. Right, right. <laughs> Definitely can relate. Can relate. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But it was also exceptionally worse in front of girls. Uh, He'd get so nervous when it came to girls that sometimes he would just avoid any confrontation altogether. Gotcha. Like he would just avoid girls like the plague. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> But any kid would feel these pressures of moving into a middle school. I mean, it's it's a totally different environment from elementary school. 
you're growing older, puberty is running rampant, hormones and other things are on the rise. You know, middle school is literally just a melting pot of issues for children. (laughs) (laughs) I remember having a horrible time in middle school. Oh, my God. Same. I don't not even just middle school. Like for me, it was elementary, middle and high school. I had I had the utmost horrible experience (laughs) but i get it though i enjoyed my middle school but it was like as soon as i went into middle school and high school that was it that was it you know but i can see why the transition was difficult for him because we all know what it's like yeah in middle school and kids are cruel like kids are so cruel like like i just sick and sadistic people who sit and think about memories from middle school and it's like stop it (laughs) (laughs) make it stop (laughs) Uh, anyway Dylan got involved in playing baseball soccer and t-ball he was also in Cub Scouts with his childhood friend Brooks Brown who has been his friend since the first grade oh wow Brooks actually lived near the house Eric's parents bought and he even rode the same bus as Eric so when Brooks introduced Dylan to Eric in the seventh grade they quickly became best friends, and they grew increasingly close, increasingly fast. Gotcha, gotcha. So when Eric introduced Dylan to his friend Nathan Dykeman, who was another student that attended their middle school, they all basically became super tight-knit group of friends. Right, they were their own little squad, per right, se. Right, right. Gotcha. had their own little thing going on. Dylan settled in a Columbine High easier this time thanks to the group of friends. He excelled in his schoolwork, and he even joined Eric in being very active for the school's play production, like they were doing audiovisual work for the school. Oh, wow. They also had become computer assistants as well, and they would spend their time maintaining the school's computer server. Wow. Yeah, so they were extremely smart. Dylan and Eric, they were inseparable. And they even worked together. Like, they were both cooks at Blackjack Pizza, which was only a stone's throw away from Columbine High School. And Eric was even promoted to shift leader. So, so they really they really had it going on, yeah, it seems. Things seemed to be going very well for both of them. They'd hang out with their friends by going out bowling or carpooling or playing the video game Doom at home on their computers while they were, like, connected to a private server. So, you know, Eric, he actually created a set of levels on this server, which later became known as the Harris levels. And if you're familiar with Doom and you know anything about these levels, please send me an email further explaining this. Because although I understand the concept, you know, I am a gamer, but I know nothing about Doom. So thank you. Right. I also, uh, I do definitely love my video games, uh. Genshin Impact has taken over my life completely (laughs) for like two months now, but uh, I don't know anything about Doom, though. Yeah, that's all it's been is Genshin and true crime. Literally. Literally. (laughs) But if any of you play Genshin Impact, you're awesome. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, all right. But things took a drastic turn for the worse in their second year of high school. And people started noticing how dark and weird things were getting. 
So Chad Laughlin was a close friend of Eric and Dylan, and he said that they always sat alone together at lunch, and they often kept to themselves, which isn't all that bad, right? Right. You know, ooh. But Eric, he went from being known as the charismatic and likable guy to being the kid that goes zero to a hundred quickly, like quickly. Wow. Um, it was scary how fast he would switch. He would even threaten people with bombs. Yeah. That's, again, just a wee bit extreme. That's a lot of intense. Goodness. But his peers, they also mentioned that he was fascinated by war and wrote out violent fantasies about killing people he didn't like. All righty. While Eric seemed to be unpredictable and volatile... Dylan appeared to be more introverted, shy, quiet, reserved, and just vulnerable to Eric's lead. But his behavior did change as well. He was also prone to sudden outbursts of rage with a very short fuse. So, something was going on between the two of them. They began dressing like the trench coat mafia, which was a clique in the school at the time composed of loners and misfits that would quite literally do what they wanted to rebel against the popular kids in school. Which, I mean, right on. You know, stick it to the popular kids. But uh, they were believed to be part of this clique due to the fact that they were wearing long black trench coats, black clothes, and black boots. Which was commonplace in the trench coat mafia at the time. But Eric and Dylan were not ever really members of the group. They were more like fringe members because one of their friends was part of the clique. But it's a common misconception when discussing Columbine that they were ever part of the trench coat mafia. They weren't. Gotcha. Gotcha. I had also heard that, actually. Yeah, and that was something that a lot of newsreels seemed to have, like, zoned in on. But they were never a part of that clique. They had, like, their own little friend group going on. Gotcha, gotcha. And just because one of the boys, I guess, was part of that. They were immediately associated. Exactly. Gotcha. So the boys began to be singled out and hassled by the so-called jocks in the school because of the way they were dressing and acting. I told you a bit of how their behavior changed, but here's another really disturbing fact of how it changed. Both boys studied German in high school. It was their, uh, I believe, fourth period class and they became interested and enamored with adolf hitler and the nazis oh fuck yeah no they would even wear swastikas and would sometimes give the heil hitler salute oh my god it was bad it was bad like holy shit like out of all the people to idolize Uh Uh-huh. Hitler? Holy fucking shit. Exactly. Holy fucking shit. But, you know, I had to ask, like, what changed in them? What caused this switch out of nowhere? Well, I wonder if they were maybe doing the whole Hitler thing and wearing the swastikas. value. Like, being edgy, basically. You know what I'm saying? Like, I... uh, I don't know. But before we continue on that tangent... Now I'm going to tell you a little bit of what happened with Brooks Brown and Eric and Dylan. But first, this is a clip of Brooks Brown describing what bullying was like at Columbine for the boys. 
I'm going to play that clip for you now. Eric and Dylan did get this every day, and we, we all knew it. Um, and we all talked about it, and we, we laughed about it because that's all you can do. They're walking through the halls, and you can see a wall of jocks coming at them. You get the hell out of the way. Uh, there, it's their hall, their, their world. And Eric and Dylan didn't get out of the way. And so you see the jocks lay their elbows right into Eric and almost knock the camera out of his hand, and you don't hear them bitching because they're so used to it, they don't go, what the hell was that? They go, uh-huh, and they just move on because it's so commonplace. So shooting the kids at Columbine apparently is easier than fitting it at the school. That's the biggest lesson to learn about Columbine. Bullying at Columbine was just the standard of what bullying was really like in the 90s. It was not only featured on TV and in the movies, but also in comedy and humor as well. Back then, the internet was still in its infancy, and the effects of bullying were not put in everyone's faces for them to see every day like it is now. No one in the 90s really discussed mental health or bullying like they do now. It was just a different time. My parents raised me to fight a bully back, so that just goes to show <laughs> that because, because back then we fought violence with violence and no one said a word about it. <laughs> right. So just keep this in mind as we go forward because although the evidence is there on tape that they were indeed bullied, it is not the only motivating factor of what caused them to attack innocent people and kill them. That is yet another common misconception. But back to the story, it was later revealed that Dylan and Eric bonded over their shared hatred and dissatisfaction of the school and the people in it. But they were drastically different in their personality traits and dispositions. It's believed that Eric was emotionally dependent on Dylan. But Dylan wrote in his journals that he felt that he was not accepted or loved by anyone. So it's quite possible that he sought out validation from Eric. Sue Klebold, Dylan's mother, she believed Eric's rage intermingled with Dylan's self-destructive personality, causing the boys to feed off of each other and enter into what eventually became an unhealthy relationship. Eric created various websites that had Doom and Quake files, but from what I understand, there was like one main website. Man, I remember Quake. I'm showing my age real bad today. <laughs> so... He had team information posted up there for those he gamed with regularly. And it's basically like he was running his own gaming clan, but in the 90s would dial up internet and a website. <laughs> right, right. You know, but the thing is, the site openly adopted and supported hatred for people, not only in Dylan and Eric's neighborhood, but also for anyone in the world in general. It was literally filled with violent tirades against anyone and everyone Eric disliked or thought had done him wrong. And this website began to reflect the turmoil that was hidden deep inside of him. Just like the website became a reflection of Eric's thoughts of hate-fueled turmoil, Dylan's schoolwork would begin to show very troubling signs that something was wrong. Dylan took a creative writing class at Columbine High, another class he shared with Eric, and one of his essays unnerved his teacher so much that she refused to grade it until she could first sit down and talk with him and his parents about it. Oh, shit. The first paper Dylan wrote was called The Mind and Motives of Charles Manson. This is also available in the link I provided in the show notes. 
It's several pages long, just letting you know. But uh, his teacher ended up grading this assignment and giving it back to him. But this next particular assignment was the one that the teacher wouldn't grade until she could sit down with Dylan and his parents. This paper drew a lot of media attention due to its subject matter. But he wrote this essay just a few weeks before the shootings. And that was the part that unnerved the teacher the most. It was a fictional piece where a lone gunman goes on a killing spree, killing all the popular kids in town. Oh, my God. Yeah, so between Holy shit. Between the subject matter and the foul language he used, it really shook Miss Kelly up and she wasn't expecting this, you know? Right. I mean, what teacher would expect that? Like, holy fuck. So during the conference with Dylan and his parents, when the story was addressed, Dylan excused it as quote, just a story. I could only imagine being in Sue Klebold's shoes during that meeting. That's not only scary, but it's also heartbreaking as well. She probably thought that Eric had rubbed off on Dylan too much. Like, right. I don't know, but damn, like, could you imagine your kid writing something so violent and detailed? Of course, that's going to be scary. I am going to read an excerpt from this assignment. Quote, the town's activity came to a stop and all attention was now drawn to this man. One of the preps began to slowly move back. Before I could see a reaction from the preps, the man had dropped his duffel bag and pulled out one of the pistols with his left hand. Three shots were fired. Three shots hit the largest prep in the head. The shining of the streetlights caused a visible reflection off the droplets of blood as they flew away from the skull. The blood splatter showered the preps' buddies as they were too paralyzed to run. The next four preps were not executed so systematically, but with more rage from the man's hand cannon than a controlled duty for a soldier. The man unloaded one of the pistols across the fronts of these four innocents, their instantly lifeless bodies dropping with remarkable speed. The shots from that gun were felt just as much as they were heard. He pulled out his other pistol and without changing a glance, Without moving his death stare from the four other victims to go, aimed the weapon out to the side and shot about eight rounds. These bullets mowed down what, after he was dead, I made out to be an undercover cop with his gun slung. He then emptied the clip into two more preps. Then, instead of reloading and finishing the task, he set down the guns and pulled out the knife. The blade loomed huge, even in his large grip. I now noticed that one of two still alive was the smallest of the band who had now wet his pants and was hyperventilating in fear, end quote. Holy fucking shit. The chilling part of this writing assignment was the fact that in the paper he says this guy is six foot four and left-handed. Dylan is six foot four and left-handed. He also described the outfit in the paper and it is eerily similar to what he wore during the Columbine attack. Oh, my God. Eric's schoolwork was also a reflection of what was going on in his mind as well. And he wrote a poem from the perspective of a bullet. I was not able to find that poem, but what the fuck? That is absolutely insane. So when Eric and Dylan spent time together, they'd play violent video games and talk about their preferred guns and how to make explosives. 
They would also make their own mini-movies that were action-packed with the boys holding weapons and sweeping a room for someone to shoot. They were also recording themselves out in a wooded clearing firing guns at trees and making the comment, quote, imagine that being someone's head, end quote. Son of a bitch, man. Pretty scary stuff. So then they began experimenting to make their own homemade pipe bombs, and they would post the results of their experiments online on Eric's website. It was only until after the shooting that America Online shut the website down and preserved them for the FBI. Holy fucking shit. So we touched on Eric's anger a minute ago, but his rage was so visible and apparent that anyone who he felt wronged him was going to feel the fury. Eric's online rants began as early as 1996 in the form of hate-filled journal entries, and these tirades were, you know, broken up with dark song lyrics from his favorite songs and really bad jokes. Well, he got really angry at Brooks Brown. You remember his childhood friend? Mm-hmm. In 1997 and 1998, there was a falling out between Brooks and Eric, so Eric threw an ice ball into the windshield of Brooks's car and cracked the windshield. <sighs> While being ever so happy to describe how he's terrorizing Brooks online on his website, he even encouraged his online friends to do the same when he posted Brooks's home address. What the fuck? He was making death threats toward Brooks on his website. He was building pipe bombs at home while threatening Brooks online and in school, while encouraging everyone he knew to single Brooks out and join in terrorizing him. That's fucking terrifying. Yeah, that revenge streak is... I'm just fucking blown by that, because I have to keep reminding myself we're talking about fucking, you know, 10th, 11th grade students. Yeah. Like, that is fucking insane. Back during the MySpace days, I had literally everyone I knew turn their back on me because of one person, and being on the receiving end of that is fucking torture. Yeah, it it's not it's fun. It's hell. It's not fun. And I can only imagine what Brooks was feeling. I mean, Randy and Judy Brown even reported Eric to the police in March of 1998, but nothing was done about it, which is horrible wild to me it's fucking sad you have adults telling you this kid is posting death threats online about their kid with homemade pipe bombs and terrorizing him online and at school then encouraging people to join in like it's scary it's fucking scary and no one did anything now i don't think it actually came down to attacking brooks physically but things were definitely getting out of hand like they were definitely getting out of hand right Jefferson County Sheriff's Office investigator Mike Guerrera looked at Harris's website after Randy and Judy made the report, and even he saw that Eric was making threats aimed at Brooks. He also wrote a draft affidavit for a search warrant, but the affidavit was never filed. Of course it wasn't. So this information was not revealed to the public until September of 2001, though it was known by the police the entire fucking time. That is absolutely fucking mind-boggling to me. And here's a note to make. Even with Randy and Judy filing their report on Eric, like, they literally, when I say they did nothing, they literally fucking did nothing. They looked at the websites, started to write that affidavit, and didn't even do anything. 
They didn't contact the parents. They didn't go after the website. They didn't contact America Online. Nobody did anything. The report files were subsequently lost during the Columbine investigation. The file resurfaces later as the Guerrero files because he was the officer who took the initial complaint. But there was indeed a cover-up going on because Randy and Judy warned them well before Columbine took place and nothing was done about it. So on the night of January 30th, 1999, Eric and Dylan were both arrested after stealing some computers and other electronic equipment after breaking into a locked van. A Jefferson County Sheriff's officer drove on the two boys where they were parked. They were further down the road at another park entrance, and since the park area was closed by that time of night, the arresting deputy was suspicious and determined to get some answers. So the deputy first announced his presence, and as one of the boys began to move the stolen goods into the trunk of their car, they're stopped like a deer in the fucking headlights by the sheriff. Jesus. So they were caught red-handed, and Eric actually admitted to the theft after the deputy asked where the equipment came from. He didn't make any attempts to lie once he knew he was busted, but they were both charged with breaking and entering, theft, criminal mischief, and criminal trespassing. So since it was their first offense, and both the boys made a good first impression with juvenile officers, they were offered record expungement if they enrolled in a diversion program, which basically consisted of community service and counseling for some type of psychiatric treatment. They were released a month early from the program in February 1999, only two months before their rampage. Eric was required to attend anger management classes where, again, he made a favorable impression. And the boys' probation officer discharged them from the program a few months ahead of schedule for their good behavior. Now, after Eric threatened Brooks on that website and the police got involved, Eric changed gears and began to keep his violent, angry thoughts in handwritten journals dating back to April of 1998. So at this point, with all this stuff going on and going to anger management... Eric begins to write in these journals where he kept notes about the doom levels he was creating, but mostly he would write about how much he hated the world and everyone in it. April 26, 1998, Eric writes in detail how he thinks society could be improved by boosting natural selection. He lays out initial plans for how he and V would carry out his boost, including a short weapons detail and tactics disclosure. It seems like just a rough fantasy rant, but the sinister foundation for further mayhem has literally begun. Here is an excerpt from this entry. Quote, It would be great if God removed all vaccines and warning labels from everything in the world and let natural selection take its course. All the fat, ugly, retarded, crippled, dumbass, stupid fuckheads in the world would die. And oh fucking well if a few of the good guys die too. Maybe then the human race can actually be proud of itself. World War II is the last time I bet America was proud of itself, end quote. Good God. His writing entries also explain that he and V, which was short for vodka, which was Dylan's nickname. Eric's nickname was Reb. Um, but anyway, Eric said that he and Dylan were different because they had self-awareness. 
Okay. He, yeah. He wrote, quote, I will sooner die than betray my own thoughts. But before I leave this worthless place, I will kill whoever I deem unfit, end quote. Son of a bitch, man. My stomach is in knots. My stomach is in knots. This is so fucking sad. Like, this is so sad. So chilling. Like, I don't even know what to fucking say. I've been quiet for like the last 20, 30 minutes because I'm just, I'm hearing all of this for the first time. Yeah. So oh, I'm just okay. really taking it in because it's like I said way earlier in the episode, everyone obviously knows what Columbine is. But all of this information, I had no idea about. Like, this is really showing me, if anything, how much I didn't know about Columbine and the events leading up to Columbine. Yeah. Like, this is fucking horrible. Yeah. This is so sad. Like, I cannot even explain the heaviness that is on my spirit right now. Like, I, I seriously can't. All I can do is just sit here and just. <laughs> just. You Jesus. know. Jesus. In sheer contrast to Eric, Dylan was also writing in his journal from entries of Dylan questioning why he feels so distant and numb to professing a love to a girl that doesn't even know he exists, basically. You see pages of I love you redacted, like it's it's like blacked out. Got you. But there's this one page that was written neater and more legible than his regular entries, and it was a love letter written to the girl who never received it. Oh, fuck, man. As it was still part of Dylan's journal when the police took it from his home after Columbine. It was, like, still in his journal. Here is an excerpt from this page. Quote, You don't consciously know who I am, undoubtedly unconsciously too. I, who write this, love you beyond infinis. I think about you all the time, how this world will be a better place if you love me as I do you. I know what you're thinking. Some psycho wrote me this harassing letter. I hoped we could have been together. You seem a lot like me. Pensive, quiet, an observer, not wanting what is offered here, school, life, etc. You also seem lonely like me. You probably have a boyfriend, though, and might not given this note another thought. I have thought you my true love for a long time now, but, well, there was hesitation. You see, I can't tell if you think of anyone as I do you, and if you do, who that would be. Fate put me in need of you, yet this earth blocked that with uncertainties. I will go away soon, but I just had to write this to you, the one I truly loved. End quote. Holy fucking shit, It's so man. sad. My God, these kids, they needed someone to fucking talk to. Like, they needed some, they needed someone, they needed some fucking help. Like, I just can't get over how sad this is. This is so incredibly fucking sad. And I'm not trying to, you know, also not necessarily trying to give feedback in a way to make you feel sorry for them necessarily. But at the same time, how can you not feel sorry for them? Yeah. It doesn't excuse anything they fucking did and all of the lives that they ruined and all of the families that they destroyed. But like, my God, how can you not feel bad about that? And look at that. Everyone at just has everything a story. they're going through. Right. Everyone has a story regardless of where that story takes them for good or for bad. And that's the thing here. Like, it's 
it's really sad. And you can go and look at all the journal entries and drawings and their diaries on the website that I listed in the show notes. But from here on out, I will only be concentrating on what's in Eric's journal um, because Dylan's journal is an explosion of obsession over this girl. Like it is just, you know, drawings of, of hearts that look like a nuclear bomb has gone off. You know, holy shit. Yeah, it, it's just it's a lot like you see nothing but him professing this love and loving this girl so much. And then, boom, Columbine plans out of nowhere. So I've included Dylan's drawings and um of the Columbine stuff and the list in the photo dump. But it is just, oh, God, it really made me feel something as I was flipping through the pages of his journal. Because the website that I'm giving you, you can actually start at the first page and just, like, hit next page, next page. And just go through it. Right. You can just go through the journal. Um, so I want to thank, right quick, a Columbine site because that website has literally like all information on it. It has literally everything. Gotcha. So not only was I using other sources, but I was also using their resources as well because they have so much information. Gotcha. Gotcha. Later that month, Brooks Brown appeared on PBS on April 29th, 1998 on PBS's online news hour, where he described in detail the type of content Eric posted on his websites. But it would still be some time before the Guerrera files would see the light of day. So still nothing is being done about this very serious situation that is coming to a boil. And I'm talking about that website and what's on that website and who's the one posting on that website, you know? Right. So on April 30th, 1998, Herrick handed over a rough draft of a letter to his P.O. It was an apology letter he had to write to the owner of the van, which he completed in May. In the letter, Eric expresses his regret of his actions. However, he was only writing what he believed the adults would want to hear and see from him. In actuality, he wrote in his journal... And the entry is dated April 12th, 1998, and he says, quote, Isn't America supposed to be the land of the free? How come, if I'm free, I can't deprive some fucking dumb shit of his possessions if he leaves them sitting in the front seat of his fucking van in plain sight in the middle of fucking nowhere on a fry fucking day night? All righty. All righty. He's really showing all the colorful language of his vocabulary. Oh, you know? goodness. And, Just... Yeah, and then he continues and says, natural selection. Fuckers should be shot. Same thing with all those rich, snotty toadies at my school. Fuckers think they're higher than me and everyone else with all their money just because they were born into it. I hope I'm saying this right, but he says, ich denk nein. By the way, sorry is just a word. It doesn't mean shit to me. Everyone should be put to a test, an ultimate doom test. See who can survive in an environment using only smarts and military skills. Put them in a doom world. No authority, no refuge, no bullshit cop-out excuses. If you can't figure out the area of a triangle or what cation means, you die. If you can't take down a demon with a chainsaw or kill a hell prince with a shotgun, you die. Fucking snotty rich fuckheads, redacted, 
who rely on others or on sympathy or money to get them through life should be put to the challenge. Plus, it would get rid of all the fat, retarded, crippled, stupid, dumb, ignorant, worthless people of this world. No one is worthy of this planet. Only me and whoever I choose. There is just no respect for anything higher than your fucking boss or parent. Everyone should be shot out into space and only the people I saw should be left behind. End quote. So that gives you some perspective. I'm just fucking speechless. Like, truly, I am. He also said earlier in the same entry, he says, quote, As I said before, self-awareness is a wonderful thing. I know what all you fuckers are thinking and what to do to piss you off and make you feel bad. I always try to be different, but I always end up copying someone else. I try to be a mixture of different things and styles, but when I step out of myself, I end up looking like others or others think I am copying. One big fucking problem is people telling me what to fucking do, think, say, act, and everything else. I'll do what you say if I feel like it. But people, i.e. parents, cops, God, teachers, telling me what to arrow points to do, think, say, act, and everything else... Just makes me not want to fucking do it. That's why my fucking name is Reb. No one is worthy of shit unless I say they are. I feel like God and I wish I was. Having everyone being officially lower than me. I already know that I am higher than almost anyone in the fucking world in terms of universal intelligence and where we stand in the universe compared to the rest of the universe. End quote. So. Yeah. Heavy. Heavy. He's got this God complex going on. You know. It's just like the hatefulness of it. Yeah. Like it's so. It Like it's such hateful writing. Yeah. Like it is so fucking hateful. And so full of just all of these horribly negative emotions that I just. I don't know how to process that. Like I'm, I'm shocked. That this is coming from a fucking teenager almost. Like, you know, we're all angsty at some point in our lives. Like, good God, I know I definitely was. Oh, we love the angst. We love the angst. And I'm still angsty sometimes today, I feel like, a little bit. But, like, this is way beyond that. Way beyond. This is way beyond any level of of teenage angst that I've I've ever encountered or seen. Like, this is just, it's so hateful that it's unbelievable. Right. Like, that this is just pouring out of him. This is what he really thinks and feels. It's, I mean, as much as it's unbelievable, it's also just fucking sad. Yeah. That he was this clustered with hate. That just, oh, man, I don't know. So now let's discuss the basement tapes and what else I could find of the journals and diaries. Eric and Dylan were both into the digital world. Cameras, camcorders, and video games. So the boys began to make several videos that featured themselves and their friends as characters. These videos were dubbed the basement tapes. As I briefly touched on earlier, both Dylan and Eric were in audio-visual class and Dylan worked in the theater department. They were also computer assistants for the school. So this gave them full access to all sorts of recording equipment and the Rebel News Network broadcasting station at the school. They left behind several videotapes that they made, and most of these tapes have been released to the public. In fact, you can now find the footage or transcripts of the footage online, with one huge exception. 
the basement tapes. Now, the basement tapes are the most notorious of the unreleased videos. They probably won't be released or made to the public until 2026. Even though Jefferson County claims that they destroyed all the copies of the tapes back in 2011, the basement tapes have been confused with their acting in short films they made, one of which was called Hitman for Hire, which was apparently filmed for a school project, but it is chilling because it looks like a dress rehearsal for what they did at Columbine. The boys played the main characters that were hitmen in black trench coats. Supposedly, these characters were the saviors that geeks, outcasts, nerds, and the downtrodden could turn to in order to take care of bullies who were harassing them and making their lives a living hell. On film, Dylan and Eric run around protecting the oppressed, taking out the bad guys or the bullies. It basically showed them pretending to shoot fake guns and snuffing out other students in the hallway of their school as literal hitmen for hire. The video is known for its swearing scenes in which they yelled at the camera and said whatever sounded badass or macho to them to seem intimidating. But when you watch it, it is it is sheer 90s cringe is what it is. It is sheer 90s cringe. And I'm not making fun of them. I'm just saying... That, like, these whole swearing scenes were like, I'm going to rip off your goddamn head. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's so, it's so, like, cringy comical, but with that underlying note of, like, damn. Like, holy fucking like, shit. Like, holy shit, they really did this, you know? Right, right. I managed to get a small snippet of the clip of them walking into frame, and it literally shook me. Like, bitch, when I say my asshole ran and hid under the bed, <laughs> it made friends with the monster under my bed. Because knowing what happened and seeing that will fuck you up. But anyway, I added that small segment into our digital dump. Hitman for Hire can be found on YouTube. I've included a link in the show notes to the video compilation put together by a channel named Gert. He actually has the footage labeled incorrectly, though, as the real basement tapes are the boys talking on camera about what they were going to do and who was and wasn't involved directly before Columbine happened. I actually have the transcript here of the actual basement tapes, which I also included in the show notes, and I will read some of it now. I will warn you before I begin there is heavy mocking of Christianity, and if you want to skip this, please do so. I'll begin where Dylan and Eric brag about hiding their tools or their guns and about the close calls along the way. Eric shows the camera a black tackle box with his bomb-making equipment stowed inside, and they boast about concocting their plan under the noses of unsuspecting parents and friends. Dylan recalls a time when his parents walked into his bedroom while he was trying on his trench coat to see if it would hide his sawed-off shotgun. Oh, my God. Dylan says, quote, they didn't even know it was there, end quote. Eric tells about a day he was going to go shooting in the mountains, and he has his shotgun in a gym bag. It was in his, quote, terrorist bag sticking out, end quote. When he walked by his mother, he, she saw the butt of the gun, but she assumed it was nothing more sinister than his BB gun. Fooling people was a point of pride for both of the boys. 
one they gloat about during the videotaping. Eric says, quote, I could convince them that I'm going to go climb Mount Everest or I have a twin brother growing out of my back. I can make you believe anything, end quote. Whoa, fucking we. The subject shifts and they begin talking about several people they know. They make a comment about another student named Dustin Harris or Harrison and how, quote, everything you say is pointless, end quote. Eric says, shut the fuck up, Nick. You laugh too much. And those two girls sitting next to you, they probably want you to shut the fuck up, too. Jesus. Rachel and Jen and whatever. Then Dylan says, I don't like you. Rachel and Jen, you're stuck-up little bitches. You're fucking little Christian godly little whores, is what he says. Oh, righty. And I just want to make a note right now that if you hear me, like, seemingly giggle or, like, or anything like that, I promise 100% that it is anxiety-filled. Like, I am in no way laughing at any of this. Like, I just really want to make that clear. Like, I am just having a great deal of anxiety um, so that's how I cope with it. We literally laugh and at Goofy, I just want to make that reminder. We are not laughing at this. This shit is not funny. Right. Like none of this is funny. So just, you know, continue on. I'm going to continue to fall apart in my fucking chair now. So Dylan says that. And then Eric goes, yeah, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Shut the fuck up. Dylan <laughs> says, what would Jesus do? What the fuck would I do? Yeah. Oh my God. If you guys could just see my face right now, holy fucking shit. Dylan acts like he's shooting the camera with his hand with sound to accompany it. Like, like that. Holy fucking shit, man. Eric then says, I would shoot you in the motherfucking head. Go Romans. Thank God they crucified that asshole. Yeah. Yeah. And then both of the boys go, go Romans, go Romans. Yeah, woo. And then Eric discusses Arlene, which is his 12-gauge Savage shotgun. Eric then goes on to say, thanks to the gun show and to Robin. Robin is very cool. Robin was a friend of Dylan's that purchased the gun, but I'll get into that. Um, The boys then decide to take a video tour of Reb's room and all the illegal shit in it. Dylan backs out of the room with the camera and pretends to be Eric's mother. And then Eric waves at the camera and goes, "Hi, mom." Oh my god! It's the coldest god. shit I've that like that is the coldest shit I've ever read through in my life. In my life, I didn't even like read it out loud when I put this in here. I didn't read it out loud because I didn't want to say it. Yeah, it's. I am only saying all of this stuff because you guys need to know what happened. So it, it's like, oh god, that is. It's a lot. It's very, it's very extreme. That is very, very extreme. So they're literally bragging about how they can manipulate those that love them into believing everything is okay and normal. When in reality, they really have problems that they were desperately needing help for. And it's an unpopular opinion because of what happened. But to tell the absolute truth, if Eric and Dylan had gotten real help, the lives of those that were lost in the Columbine massacre would have been saved. Eric switched behaviors like that from being able to say such things in a cold, meaningful way to switching it up and waving at the camera and saying, Hi, Mom. That's fucking scary. That is fucking scary. 
In October of 1998, Eric writes in his journal that someone is bound to ask the question, what were they thinking? To that he answers, I want the world to burn. Or I want to burn the world more specifically. Thank you, Batman, for that interjection. (laughs) Uh, I want to kill everyone except about five people. If we get busted anytime we start killing then and there, I ain't going out without a fight. End quote. So, now, who is Robin? And how did they get the weapons? So, 18-year-old Robin Anderson was once Dylan Klebold's prom date. She is the one that bought three out of the four guns used in the Columbine Massacre. But she denied any knowledge of what they'd actually been used for. She didn't know why they asked her to buy the weapons. But she did say in an interview with Good Morning America that she regrets not pressing them harder for an explanation. She said, quote, I wish that I had known more. I wish that I had questioned more. I wish now that I hadn't gone with them, that I would have said, I feel uncomfortable. Maybe you could find someone else. They really didn't say anything in particular. I just kind of assumed that they were for their hunting or collection It was just the type of thing that they were into, end quote. Robin further explained that Eric and Dylan gave her the money to buy the guns. The weapons were a rifle and two shotguns purchased at the Tanner Gun Show in Adams County in December. The following are the weapons used during the massacre. Eric Harris used a High Point 995 carbine and a Savage or Savage 678 pump action shotgun. Dylan Klebold used an Intratech Tech DC-9, a Stevens 311D double-barreled sawed-off shotgun. That's what he used. Eric and Dylan needed Robin to buy the guns because she was 18, and they were both 17 at the time. Not only could she legally buy the guns, but it was scary how easy it was for someone that young to buy a firearm. Robin said, all I did was show a driver's license. That's it. That's all she needed to buy a gun. Robin said when they wanted the guns, it really didn't seem odd at all because it was just in their personality trait. And she didn't really have any reason to believe that they would do anything with the guns. She really didn't have any idea that anything was going to happen. Looking back on it, she said, quote, I think that they had kind of a hidden hatred that they just didn't show anyone but each other. And I wish that we could have, their friends, we could have helped them in some way. End quote. An eyewitness that was Robin's friend said that Robin was in a hurry to leave school that day, perhaps as if she knew the attack was coming, to which Robin said in that interview that wasn't the case. Quote, We were only allotted 40 minutes for lunch to leave, get lunch, and come back and get back to class, end quote. And when she and the friend returned to school after getting food, they were stuck in Robin's car for two hours while the rampage unfolded inside. Oh, my fucking God. Imagine pulling up to the school and that shit is going on, like the sheer waves of panic that probably washed over them sitting there and hearing shots from inside the building possibly like no thank you my heart same i would i wouldn't know what to do with any of this honestly I, i really truly wouldn't two weeks earlier eric asked robin what day prom was she told him it was saturday which would be two days before the attack at the prom 
and the after party, he was just as happy as he could be. He was in good spirits and having a great time. Robin Anderson has not been charged with any crimes. But the Jefferson County Sheriff's spokesman, Steve David, gave a comment to the press stating, quote, Given the information from her TV interview, perhaps investigators can more clearly evaluate her role in purchasing and or supplying the weapons to the two suspects, end quote. There was apparently a legal loophole when it came to Robin purchasing the guns. Federal law prohibits the so-called straw purchase of firearms by an adult on behalf of an illegible minor. A straw purchase is any purchase in which a second person agrees to acquire a firearm for someone else. This is not the same thing as purchasing a firearm as a genuine bona fide gift. It is legal to purchase a firearm as a gift for another since you are actually buying the firearm for yourself to gift to another. However, it is illegal to purchase a firearm posing as the real buyer for someone else. That makes you a straw buyer. So if you do, it's called a straw purchase because the person posing as the buyer likely has a clean background and is doing so on behalf of another, often because that second person doesn't have a clean background. But the law pertains only to sales by federally licensed dealers. So Robin bought the three long guns from the three unlicensed vendors at a gun show. If she would have purchased a handgun, though, it would have been a felony. So tell me how that makes sense. I mean, I get the straw purchase. I understand that. Yeah. But, like, it doesn't matter if it's a long gun or a handgun. That's what I'm saying. I like, what, where, what's the difference in felony there? Like, well, between buying one or the other. Technically, from what I understand, long guns are only used in hunting. Whereas handguns can be used in obvious short combat. So. All righty. Uh all right, we'll go with that. <laughs> now, 22-year-old Mark Maines was charged with selling a Tech 9 DC9 handgun, or Tech DC9, excuse me, handgun, the fourth gun that was used in the attack to Eric and Dylan. And in the basement tapes, Dylan talks to the video camera and says, quote, I'd like to make a thank you to Mark John Doe and Phil John Doe. I hope you don't get fucked, end quote. Eric laughs and Dylan continues to speak. And then he goes on to say, we used them. They had no clue. Don't blame them and don't fucking arrest them. Don't arrest any of our friends or family members or our co-workers. They had no fucking clue. Don't arrest anyone because they didn't have a fucking clue. If it hadn't been them, it would have been someone else over 21, end quote. So they mentioned the time a clerk from Green Mountain Guns called Eric's home. Eric's dad, Wayne Harris, picked up the phone when the clerk told him, hey, your clips are in. Wayne, who was supposedly the only gun owner in the house, told the clerk he hadn't ordered any clips. Thinking nothing of the mix-up, Wayne politely ended the phone call. Eric said his father never asked whether the caller even had the right number. But Eric says if either the clerk or his father had asked just one question, quote, we would have been fucked, end quote. Oh, my So that's how they God. got the ammunition. That's how they got the ammunition. Oh, my God, the fucking chills. Like, the literal chills I have, like, my God. In November of 1998, Eric writes in detail about how he wants to have violent sex with a woman. 
He quoted a line from Nine Inch Nails' song, Closer, which, if you've never heard it, it is a song about having rough, animalistic type sex. Uh, This abusive, erotic entry changes into a gory description of how he would like to taste human flesh. I am not exaggerating. Okay. The cannibalistic rant then transforms into talking about school, where Eric shifts his attention from a woman to a freshman writing in vivid detail about the shocking, violent things that he would like to do. He goes on to write about picking up guns with the help of, quote, someone I won't name, end quote, who later turned out to be Robin. He specifies weapons that were used at Columbine, happily explaining that they've reached the point of no return and how this is literally what he wants to do with his life, is to kill people. In December of 1998, Eric writes that he would have made a good Marine, that, quote, it would have given me a reason to be good, end quote. There's no clear reason why Eric wanted to be a Marine. Some speculate he wanted to be a Marine because his father was in the military, possibly because he admired the uniform, or maybe even because he thought it would be an easy way to kill people legally. As I mentioned earlier, he did apply for enlistment in the Marine Corps, but the day the recruiter came to meet with him about his application, Eric's mother interrupted the meeting and asked the recruiter if the medication that Eric was prescribed for anger management, which was Lovox, uh, would keep him from being able to enlist. So the recruiter asked to see the bottle, she brought it to him, and he took the empty bottle with him when he left. The recruiter was polite when he left and there were no issues, but the recruiter later told investigators that he tried to contact Eric about his application, but he was unable to reach him. But he also didn't leave a message either, so apparently it wasn't good news, I guess. Right. That recruiter did not want to have to tell this kid he can't serve after his mom kind of ruined it for him, you know, but... However, according to Brooks Brown, Eric told him shortly after this interrupted meeting that he had been disqualified because he lied on his application about taking Lovux and the chest condition that he had. Remember I told you about that? About his sternum, yeah. yeah. So Eric never got the formal word that he wasn't going to be accepted, but he came to that conclusion himself. And when it comes to his journal entry, he felt this was his only path to being a good person. And now that it's been squashed, this could be a possible motive for why he was so willing to go down in flames. Because keep in mind, he's also dealing with underlying psychological issues as well. Very clearly, yes. So, in Eric's journal, there was only one entry for all of 1999. And in it, Eric evaluated his and Dylan's plans, preparations, and munitions for the Columbine attack. He ends this entry with, quote, I hate you people for leaving me out of so many fun things, end quote. Along with the basement videos he made in his writings, he excused his family of any fault or blame in what he was planning to do. Quote, it's my fault. Not my parents, not my brothers, not my friends, not my favorite bands, not computer games, not the media. It's mine, end quote. And in another entry, he wrote, quote, I'm full of hate and I love it, end quote. Mm. God. That makes me want to cry. Uh, fuck. That is just absolutely fucking heartbreaking. That is truly heartbreaking. Oh, I hate it. Eric and Dylan 
along with two friends, sat together in the back left of the bleachers as yearbook photos were taken of the class of 1998 and 1999. All four of these young men were holding their hands up like they were shooting at the camera when the class photo was taken. In hindsight, knowing that Columbine occurred, the photo I included is not only chilling, but haunting. But what is more haunting? The photo which speaks a thousand words or the writing that would adorn cryptic and frightening messages regarding not only the school, but the students in it. In Dylan's yearbook, Eric wrote, quote, God, I can't wait till they die. I can taste the blood now. NBK. End quote. It's believed from other references of MBK in both of their journals that MBK stood for Natural Born Killers, Uh which was a gory movie released on August 26, 1994, about a senseless killing spree starring Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis. Eric continued to write on, quote, You know what I hate? Mankind. Kill everything. Kill everything. He also drew a gunman standing in a sea of dead bodies, with a caption quoted from KMFDM's Dogma, quote, The only reason you're still alive is because someone has decided to let you live, end quote. Eric wrote in his own yearbook as well, writing on the photographs of almost every student, things like worthless, die, and beat. Further into the book, he simply put X's over the students he didn't like. Very few photos were unmarked. In his 1998-1999 academic day planner were lists of things to buy and things left to do before the attack. On the yearbook page for Mother's Day of 1999, Eric quoted Shakespeare, Good wombs hath borne bad sons. And that's going to complete my part one of Columbine. Holy shit it's a lot it's a lot to unpack it is a lot i am so sad now i am so fucking sad (laughs) now i will be giving you guys an extensive photo dump of things that i found including maybe a journal page here or two or you know maybe the assignment but i will give you guys some things to look at in the photo dump along with one video and that video came from as i mentioned the hitmen from higher video that they did as their, I guess, school project or whatever they were doing. But yeah, them walking into frame and walking down the halls of the Columbine High School is but a mere foreshadow of what was to come that I will be discussing in part two. Goodness gracious, this is fucking awful. This is so awful. I feel like I don't even have a lot to say. My soul is burdened. Like we said, five weeks of fucking suffer. My, I'm just so burdened. I feel so heavy. I feel so much sad. Like, I don't even know what to, because all of this, like the entirety of this episode, I knew none of this. I absolutely did not know any of this. Like, There's, There's a lot that I didn't know myself, and I lived through it. Right. So... You know, that goes to show with time as things are released. And, you know, it's not in my forefront to go searching out Columbine on any regular day, you know. So right, right. Um, there were there were some videos, as I mentioned, that that were recorded by surveillance during the day of. And I just, 
You know, you can go out there and search it yourself. I we're not going to include something I don't like want, that. Yeah, I don't. No. I don't want to do that. But anyway, I definitely don't either. That just gives me anxiety thinking about it. I think it's heavy enough without all of that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying. So, so in the next installment, I would like to talk about the events, the timeline that happened of Columbine, uh, giving you guys a 911 call. I'm also going to talk about the victims and the aftermath for not only the victims and their families but also the gunmen and their families as well, because I also feel like that is important. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you did the damn thing. I just, if you've made it this far, you guys, I'm just, I'm just sorry. I have nothing to say. I'm just, I'm so sad. Like this is so heartbreaking for me. I'm trying my hardest just to like really, really process process it it because you know, I mean, I think 90% of us that listen to this show, or maybe even 100%, I don't know, but like more times than not, you know, you know, we've all been bullied. Yeah. Like at some point in our life. And I definitely have, you know, growing up in Bible Belt, Georgia, um, Mm -hmm. and I don't mean that as an insult, but that's very much what it is. I grew up gay in the South, in Haybill and Cowfield, Georgia. And, you know, people are mean. People are really cruel and really mean. So, like, there's a lot of this with Eric and Dylan's feelings and and some things that they were going through. Now, given I never felt quite that extreme, yeah, but I definitely can relate to the notion of, you know, you being angry at a world that just doesn't seem to accept you or care for you. Right. And that's just making it exceptionally more heartbreaking for me. Like, cause it's really, really hitting that chord. Like it's hitting that chord for me. And I'm just like, fuck if these kids had help and if they had someone to to talk to and if they really had someone that, you know, maybe was a little more aware of what was going on, try to step in and say something, maybe this whole story could have went entirely differently. Maybe, but maybe not because they prided themselves on being able to, like, manipulate people. Right, and they they didn't ultimately, you know, I guess have the desire to go out and speak about how they felt. It just... And that in itself is sad, too, because they literally felt like they couldn't and they didn't want to. But I but I do feel like had it been noticed or taken more seriously back when the threats started happening. Right. Because there um, were some signs. I'm sorry. Yeah. There were some serious red flags. here. I, that... I don't completely fault his parents, because as you know, you know, I'm a parent. Your child, if they feel like, you know, it is something personal to them, they don't want to talk about it, even if you're a parent. Right. You know, so I don't necessarily fault either side of the parents. I don't. Normally, we would if, you know, the parents were pieces of shit. But in this case, or if they, they were abusive or really right. contributed to something. But this doesn't right. seem to be a case but in of this that. case. They weren't. This doesn't they seem weren't. to be a case of that. So I don't know. I'm very not excited for part two. I just. Man, this is heavy. This is really, really fucking heavy. You did an excellent job covering. I'm just going to have to go spend the rest of my day like I don't even know what I'm going to do. I guess I'm going to try to hop on Genshin or something (laughs) and like (laughs) and like clear my head because this this was just absolutely awful. So with that being said, we are going to go ahead and wrap up. This was a pretty long one. You guys, thanks for sticking with us. And if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our we <laughs> well you can totally do that you can find us on facebook at go report a true crime podcast on instagram at go report podcast and twitter oh at go report yeah <laughs> he's back <laughs> squidward revivalish
Coming! It happened. It fucking happened. It happened. He's back. So for all of you listening, just before we tie it up, if you didn't listen, like I'm guessing it was several weeks ago when you covered the Junko Furuta case around that time. I got really, really sick and I lost my voice entirely. Like, if you listen to the uh, Junko case, you will see that I could hardly talk. It was but, terrible. But that incident affected Squidward significantly. <laughs> so I'm just now. Say I, hi, Squidward. Say hi. Oh, I'm just now getting back to it. Okay, you know what? We're going to start running our mouths. Don't forget our email, you guys. GoreReportPod at gmail.com. And until next time. Bye. Are you afraid? You should be. You should be.